This is HRT, a podcast featuring interviews with HR leaders, researchers, students, and influencers. HRT takes trending topics and research in human resources, steeps them for 30 minutes or less, and leaves you with fresh brewed ideas on how to drive high-performing, inclusive organizations and create meaningful work experiences. HRT is brought to you by Villanova HRD, the graduate programs in human resource development at Villanova University. I'm here with Dr. Patricia Grabaric and Dr. Christina Sawyer. I've been listening to a lot of your Worker Being podcasts, Thriving at Work, so I know both of you uh, know a lot about well-being. And uh, given how steeped you are in the topic already, this first question might be a little harder uh, than it appears on the surface. What does well-being mean to you personally? And that's for both of you. So I can answer first. This is Patricia again. And in terms of well-being personally... I think, and likely Katina is going to say something similar. I think we think about well-being very holistically. Um, so it is about your mental health, your physical health, your um, emotional well-being, um, having the balance and of what you want in your day. So work is one piece, but also having the time to do the extracurriculars, spending time with family. That um, is the kind of balance and the mix that you want. I think that's really important. So. I view well-being kind of holistically with all those different areas. Um, and really when you're at your highest, um, when you're really thriving or when I'm really thriving is when I feel physically well, is when I'm not overly tired, um, not feeling stressed out emotionally, um, kind of just feeling really centered and in my, my body and in my brain. And then, uh, being able to kind of balance all the things I love to do. It's like, I love my full-time work. I love worker being, I love, you know, spending time with my millions of pets. Um, so I, I, when I have that balanced properly, that's when I'm feeling my best. I feel like well-being includes pets somehow. Uh, It does. Uh, There's actually research behind, uh, you know, impacts on your physical health. When you spend time with a dog or a cat, you're petting your animals and there's that bond is actually really good for you. Yeah. And I would say, I think similarly, you know, it's about finding that mix for you. And so I think for me, the mix is always challenging. And I think Patricia and I both struggle with trying to figure out how to create that, um, that balance. And I think it's never a perfect, um, equation, right. That, you're trying to just get a little bit better all the time. So for me, I think instead of striving to feel like every single day is this balanced day, I don't think that that's necessarily um, realistic. I think what we always talk about is just trying to get it a little bit closer to what might be ideal. And that requires both understanding what is ideal for you. So To me, I think that I like to have time each day to kind of disconnect and do something that's not work-related. And I also like to disconnect on the weekends. Like I like to have at least one day where I can really just not even think about um, doing work-related things. And so for me, and then I like to do more social stuff um, mixed with more relaxation type things on the weekend. So that's what's helpful for me. Um, And I don't think it's realistic that that will ever be every week. Um, But just trying to get a little bit more of that each week or a little bit closer to that each week is what, um, I try to do. And actually part of our research has been on defining, um, wellness and what we can say about that is that it varies a lot according to different people. 
What does well-being mean in the context of an organization or a workforce? That's a really good question. So when you're moving away from the personal, how do you bring it to the organization level? Um, when I think about well-being in an organization, I think about an environment where employees can find their unique mix, right? So as Katina just mentioned, we know that you know how well-being is defined kind of varies by person. What matters to each person varies. How they want to spend their day and their time varies. So having an organization and leadership that um, can help employees find that mix is going to be an organization where employees are thriving and the organization itself is going to be well. So kind of like when you sum up all those healthy, happy people, they're going to be more productive. They're going to be performing better. Um, And from an organizational perspective, obviously companies like to think about the bottom line and how they're doing performance wise. So all of that focus on individual level well-being can roll up to create an organization that's that's thriving that's you know meeting its goals etc yeah and i think it's important also to think about the different facets of well-being so part of what we uncovered in our um, independent research is that people do think about wellness in varied ways and so organizations also have to have the capacity to think about wellness in varied ways And uh, people thought about wellness from a physical health perspective, from a psychological health perspective, an emotional support perspective. Uh, People thought about it as really being seen as a whole person, having all of these different layers. And so I think what we see sometimes is that leaders or organizations that are, you know, headed up by leaders define wellness in the way that whoever is making decisions about wellness and wellness related resources, how they would define it. So if it's somebody who really emphasizes physical health, they might do a bunch of like step challenges and yoga at lunch and things like that. If it's somebody who really, you know, prioritizes psychological health, they might have conversations about struggles with mental health or things of that nature. But I think the big thing is really to recognize that it does vary. And so whatever your comfort zone is, whatever it is that you really emphasize, whatever mix is good for you might not be the same for someone else. And so I think that at the organizational level, it really needs to be multifaceted in order to meet the needs of many different types of employees. Let's get specific about that. So you'd say it makes sense, even dollars and cents for organizations to invest in well-being. But what are some specific investments that organizations can make? So based on the research that we have done independently, but also kind of looking across um, various research sources, we know that basic programs don't work the way people want them to work. So if you're going to be investing money as an organization, investing in a step challenge is probably not going to be the best use of your dollars because of how varied well-being is viewed. So what would be most helpful is supporting leaders and understanding how to support individuals. So how do you create an environment as a leader where your employees feel psychologically safe, can share with you what their needs are, and you can create that environment. Um, So focusing on things like uh, workload, so not overworking employees, that focusing on, again, that psychological safety, creating an environment where people can speak up and, and share their needs, um, really building strong connections and relationships between leaders and their teams so they can uh, support each other and, and really make sure that everyone is being taken care of in their own way so that then everyone can come to the table as whole, healthy um, 
employees and be able to contribute effectively. So it's really much more focused on um, the individual, focused on the culture and the environment that you're building um, versus investing in programs, right? Those programs are great and fun. Like give everyone a headspace membership. Awesome. Like some people are going to use it and they're going to really like it, but it doesn't have that same impact on employees overall well-being and then you know in turn the organizational impacts um, if you are focusing just on those programs versus kind of a more holistic cultural approach. Yeah. And I think a lot of what we found, which I think is great for organizations, is that the solutions to wellness are pretty low cost. So you get some bang for your buck out of it, but it's really not a lot of money that it takes. What really is the big backbone of this that we found is that leaders are able to connect with their employees to understand what their wellness needs are. And a lot of the solutions that employees are looking for to wellness are not things that are programmatic, right? So it could be something that uh, is about having flexibility in the way that you approach how you're doing your work and making sure that you're on the same page as your team so that you can actually get things done in a manner that meshes with your preferences. A lot of it has to do with um, being open to people working in different types of ways, using different kinds of mediums, right? Um, Working from different locations than maybe the company might be used to, but trying to find ways to make that happen. Um, Providing resources so that people are able to actually disconnect, right? And uh, and having those uh, policies in place so that, as Patricia was saying, like you actually have this culture that supports people in making those decisions. Um, And a lot of the things that cost money are things that are a one-time cost. So in the physical health space, for example, we had um, someone in our research who talked about how certain types of lights um, caused her to have migraines. And so they were meeting in this particular room a lot. And every time she had to sit in there for a long period of time, she was having a migraine. And so they like switched the light. And then that was a one-time cost that wasn't super expensive and she didn't have migraines anymore. It was great. So, um, I think that a lot of what companies think like, oh, I'm going to have to set aside this huge budget for wellness. And it's going to have to be this like really big cost center for us. The case, the case is what we've been hearing is a lot of the solutions are just about your approach and not really as much about like what your basic offering is from a program perspective. And when it comes down to it, we're talking a lot about leadership driving this environment. So you already have, most organizations already have a leadership development budget. It's part of that, really. Um, That's where the investment is in leader. If leaders are not used to leading in this way, that's where, you know, your biggest impact is going to be if you spend money on developing your leaders. But everyone's already thinking about that. Everybody knows leaders have such a large impact on um, the employee experience and the bottom line. So it's more being strategic around how you're using your leadership development dollars to ensure you're creating that right environment versus adding a new budget that has to do with wellness specifically. So this is instead of building a gym for the employees, giving them the flexibility to actually go to the gym because they can hold their hours around their own needs. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. Well, I've worked in organizations where it seems that everyone gets it. People need to recharge and keep well to do their most productive work. What should organizations avoid doing if they're trying not to signal that productivity and well-being are in competition or that you have to make a choice between the two of them? 
that mindset that focusing on wellness and making your employees happy is a waste of time and productivity is the most important thing. And those two things cannot line up. But those people aren't looking at the actual data around this. And we know that the data shows that when employees are happier, healthier, they're going to be much more productive. Um, I think everyone, when they think at an individual level, like if I don't get enough sleep, I'm not going to be as good tomorrow. But no, a lot of leaders struggle to think about that from an organization perspective. They just think about, you know, there's such a focus in our society around the bottom line that people get stuck kind of thinking about, well, we need all this stuff done. So we need all those hours put into that. So if an organization is trying to switch that mindset, which is kind of where I think your question's going, you know, the way to, well, one, the way to do it is look at the data. So if you have advocates on this, sharing that information and helping people understand how um, well-being does actually improve productivity, I think can be very valuable. That being said, I know there's leaders out there that'll look at that data and just be like, well, it's not what I believe and I'm going to keep moving in a different direction. So that could be, that's a huge challenge, I think, for everything that we do and everything that organizations um, that are struggling in the space are doing. And really what it comes down to is just the t- the leaders that are passionate about this and agree with this approach, they, you can see right off the bat when they start doing this, they can start showing those productivity numbers. So show even talking to your teams, talking, if you're a leader of leaders, talking to those leaders and telling them that, you know, I, I know you're not going to be your best if you aren't getting your rest and I'm going to, I have to get rest as well. And I'm going to make sure I disconnect when I go on PTO. So kind of leading, Um, by example, can be really helpful to help influence others around you that, oh, like this person is actually disconnecting in the evening and yet they're still meeting all their deadlines and everything's working fine. Um, So sometimes that people have to see it to believe it. I totally agree with the idea of trying to use yourself as a case study. It is such a challenge to try to flip a culture from the bottom up. That's really hard. And I think The only way to change minds at the top is with really compelling data and evidence from the bottom, right? And so um, there have been um, some folks in our work who shared stories with us about doing that, that they documented what were the outcomes associated with the practices, uh, both quantitative and qualitative. So they had people also submit like comments and things about what it was like to work on the team to start to show that, hey, when we do things this way, we're actually getting more positive reactions. People want to stay with the team longer, lower turnover, more commitment. Um, And so I think from that perspective, documenting what you're doing and the impacts of what you're doing to tell that story. And really it it comes down to storytelling around what it is that um, the organization could be doing differently to replicate the results that ostensibly you're having um, on your team. I feel like I've had leaders who would say that they're supportive of well-being and flexibility. And yet there's still flexibility stigma or the feeling that if you're working from home, you're not really working. So giving people the flexibility, but then also discounting their productivity or their performance based on their, they don't look like the stereotypical ideal worker. How can an employee who's faced with that dilemma sort of speak up or figure out a way to both see, be seen as a high performer and to be focused on well-being and flexibility. Yeah, I think it really comes down to documenting um, your accomplishments. You know, this is something that I would recommend to everybody for performance review purposes as well, right? Usually those happen annually. By the time you get there, 
everyone's forgotten what you did a year ago. <laughs> um, documenting everything you've done, documenting your accomplishments, keeping track of the praise and recognition you've gotten from your peers or, you know, leaders from other areas of the organization, those types of things is again, going to be what drives, uh, the change in mindset of those leaders is showing, you know, how well you're doing in the environment that's maybe more flexible. Um, so I would say that's a good place to start. You know, obviously if you're not able to make an impact there, that's, that, that's, you know, saying it's really hard to make change from the bottom up. Um, so that, you know, you don't want to kind of fit the mold of the ideal employee in the sense that all of a sudden now you're going to change and go in person. If you can try to continue living in the flexibility that the leader is saying that they are allowing you to do and then showing the data, I think is probably the best way to go. Um, and, but if you end up feeling like in order to get a promotion or something, you need to mold into this more standard approach. Um, sometimes what can be valuable is showing that change, right? So now I've moved into this, my, nothing's changed in terms of my performance, right? Um, so if you can show that there's a before and after and everything's the same and you're still getting the same recognition, you're still meeting your deadlines, you're still performing at the same level that can be valuable too. So I wouldn't recommend going and changing to that quote ideal right away, but if that initial data is not helping and you do start to mold a little bit into that, then maybe you could show that before and after and, and that nothing's really going to be improving um, if you become less flexible. Yeah. And I, in addition, the only other thing that I have heard work is uh, finding a champion. So somebody who's senior to you in the organization who also believes that the organization might need some change in this arena who could maybe talk to your leader um, or have these conversations more broadly with senior leadership to try to get people on board um, and influence their thinking. Um, a conversation that that person could have, or if you do feel comfortable, like you had mentioned, um, you know, a lot of times these folks think that they're really supportive of wellness. So maybe that's really how they want to view themselves, right? And they think that that's what they're doing, but they have a blind spot around it. Um, if you're having that conversation, you can ask, you know, bring it up. If you feel like you have that relationship with your, um, supervisor or manager, you know, Hey, I, I noticed that you have a preference for people working in person. Can you talk to me about where that's coming from and what can I do to make sure I, other than changing, right? The arrangement, which is really helpful for me to feel productive. And I can explain why that is the case. What can I do to make you feel better about this arrangement so that we can get to a place where we both understand how each other works and why we feel the way we feel, right? So I think if you have somebody who really wants to be supportive of wellness, but has a blind spot, there may also just be an avenue to have that conversation. Like maybe their assumptions that they have about what you're doing are off and you could help fill them in about what it is that you're actually doing. And there could be some understanding there that grows from those conversations. I think that's a really good point because there's also the um, leader that wants to support wellness and works like 90 hours a week, right? That leader may decide that's how they want to work, but don't actually have that expectation of their employees. And as an, the employee, you could say, you know, it's hard for me to feel like I can disconnect when you're sending me emails late at night. Like, is that what your expectation is? You know, having that discussion, it might just be that the leader's not realizing that their behaviors are making you feel like it's not appropriate to to take the flexibility that they've outlined is okay. Um, so then the leader might need to shift some of their behaviors or, you know, just even be more explicit from time to time saying like, I don't expect you to work 90 hours. This is my decision, right? 
So it could be something like that, that they just don't even realize that their behaviors are driving a perception that they're not as open to the flexibility, even if they actually are. I recently started using the send later on my emails. That's brilliant Mm -hmm. because it really sends people of I'm paying attention to when you're going to be receiving this, not when I feel like sending it. So I really, I think that just a small tool can help with that kind of signaling from leaders. So you mentioned leadership development a lot. If an organization knew that they, this is a problem area for them, or they wanted to get better at well-being, what are some leadership development um, strategies that they're going to start implementing? I think that when it comes to the, like the first thing you want to do in a leadership development program, if you're really trying to focus on creating a good environment is that focus on psychological safety. So how can you educate leaders on what psychological safety is? What are the behaviors associated with it? How can they measure whether or not they have safety on their team? Um, and then kind of evaluating what that safety looks like and figuring out how to improve it. And that takes time, right? If there's a lack of trust or some fear within the team, it's going to take a little bit of time for them to get comfortable to get to that safer space. Um, but I think that's like the number one thing to start because once you have that safety in place, the employees will be able to speak up and say, Hey, your 90 hour work week is making me feel like I can't do that. Right. Um, they're going to be able to start expressing what their needs are. Um, the leaders can be more vulnerable and hopefully sharing their challenges and issues and concerns so that they can have an open dialogue and start to support each other better in a way that's more, um, impactful to the overall work environment. So I think that's a great place to start is thinking about how you can embed some of that in a leadership development program. Yeah. And I think also it's not something that you can sort of invest in one time and be done. And then the culture's not supporting it. The senior leaders don't actually care about it. Like, I think that it needs to be integrated into the workplace in a way that it's not just a one and done, um, but that there are continued reminders, content, um, pull through accountability partners. Um, in our um, content that we've been putting together from our independent research, we build in a lot of activities, worksheets, but then also action planning, goal setting. Um, at the end of sessions that we do, we always ask people to find a partner in the session who can help hold them accountable to the goals that they set. So I think that um, part of it also is to make sure that it's not a check the box activity that you're actually integrating and pulling that through in a way that people are going to have an environment where it can, it can transfer as best as possible. And HR departments can really support that by you know, maybe a leadership expectation is creating a psychologically safe environment. So now you do a 360 evaluation. That's part of it. That's part of your performance review. That's part of how you're bonused. All of those things will incentivize people to continue to, to use those muscles after they've gone through some sort of educational training around that. Maybe every year leaders have to have a goal around the environment that they're building. Um, all of those things, again, will really support creating that as a culture and an expectation for all leaders versus just here's a a concept. Great to know. You're going to think about it for two months and then you're done. Right. Well, also we've built you a gym. Can you send your employees there versus we already think you're a great manager. Here's how some ways that you can get better and we can support you as a leader. I feel like what you're talking about is not a whole nother thing, but it's, it's helping leaders be better leaders. I think that they would probably be more open to that and more supportive of that and role model that in, in a way that in HR, we don't always see managers, you know, being like our best advocates for our well-planned programs. 
but this one is about them, for them, and helps them become better leaders. So it's it's a really different way of looking at well-being. Yeah, but I think you're completely right that you know, if you can market it that way and really help leaders understand this is going to help them continue to grow in their career too, then that should be something people will buy into. Um, and then everyone, you know, loves to be, uh, called out to, you know, join a new development program because we think you have potential. We think you are, can be better, um, in a positive way. And so I think that's a really great way to approach it from an HR perspective is, you know, here's some tools to help you grow and develop as a leader so that you can continue to, you know, move up this organization and really help drive the culture that the company cares about. I was thinking that there are probably still leaders who are struggling with being more flexible and having part of their team or their whole team working from a distance. Um, We've been practicing that for a while, but I think there was a range of ability to manage people from a distance and be flexible, um, you know, three or four years ago. And we're still not to a place where it's just a very comfortable thing. If, if you had a history of always overseeing people that were always on site. So it also has the added bonus of feeling like these are skills that the new style of management that is needed now, all leaders could benefit from. Yeah, I completely agree with that too. Cause you're right with the remote environment, that trust is extra important, that psychological safety. So these are skill sets that translate in the new way of working and hopefully can, can be seen as a huge win for leaders to learn. What do you think is the next big thing when it comes to workplace well-being? I feel like we've been talking about it this whole time. I think the next big, big thing is going to be this cultural overhaul, this looking at work environments holistically treating people as, you know, individuals, whole people that have things outside of work and really trying to support them as whole, you know, thriving individuals, um, versus this, uh, programmatic mindset. You know, I think there's still a lot of people that are focusing on that, but we're starting to see shifts in the environment. People are starting to talk about a little bit more similarly to the way we talk about it. Uh, and I think there's also been backlashes against some of these work wellness programs as well. Um, I listened to another podcast that had a whole episode against workplace wellness programs because they're not always very inclusive. If you're doing a step program, who can actually participate in that? Not everybody. So there's a lot of uh, challenges with some of these programs that are not that are hurting employee sentiment about companies. So I think moving away from that is going to be the next big thing, the next big trend. I was going to say I love mindfulness. I think it's really wonderful. But when people are working 60 or 70 hours a week because they're understaffed, it's probably not the time to implement mindfulness. Um, <laughs> so you see this kind of pushback of like, that's not what we need right now because the programming is usually on trend, not on point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we're seeing a lot of people who tried the trends and they're seeing that the trends are not sticking because the fundamentals about their workplaces haven't shifted. So Uh, your employees would much rather you figure out a way to solve the work role overload problem than to give you a way to cope secondarily with that problem, right? And so a lot of what we've been talking about is addressing these wellness issues at the root, as opposed to providing a solution that's more band-aid in nature. And so I do think that, you know, the the band-aid type solutions um, can be helpful, right? Like um, research shows that mindfulness training does help, right? But people are like, it's that, like you said, the timing on it. Um, we have, uh, someone in our, um, interview pool who talked about her employer introducing programs, 
um, into her company at an extremely stressful time. And they were like, look what we've done for you. We're giving you these wellness programs that now you can take them on your free time. And they were about resilience or something like that. And, um, and I think her point was like, I don't have free time that I want to spend on that. And also I wouldn't need so much resilience if this environment wasn't so bad. And so employees are looking at that and saying, well, fix the problem. Don't just give me, um, you know, something to sort of set consolation prize, right? Like we're not going to fix the actual issue, but here's this other thing. So I think that's where people are really moving because the wellness needle has moved far enough that people have tried a lot of that stuff and they're seeing that they're still having the same repeat problems that they were having before. It is a notoriously trendy space. Um, I have to admit, there are some trends that I do love. Gratitude um, is my favorite thing right now. It's something I'm very passionate about. And I think it does have the ability to, I don't know, change your relationships or, or um, really make your social network stronger. So I'm, my, my passion right now is gratitude in the wellness space. What's your passion right now in, in the wellness space? If there was a trend you loved, what, what is it? Well, I think gratitude is a good one to love because that one has so much research behind it and kind of ties into this cultural shift, right? Because if people are expressing gratitude to each other, then they tend to be more connected. Um, there tends to be better teamwork. So I think that's a really good one and definitely ties into everything we're talking about in terms of what I'm passionate about in the well-being space. I feel like this is going to be so lame, but everything we've talked about, like, I really do feel very, very strongly about this approach to well-being in the workplace. Um, it, you know, matter, it matters a lot to me. I just see it being done incorrectly so much and so many times and it really impacting employees and their personal lives and just their overall well-being outside of work. And it's really unfortunate. Like, I do not like seeing that. I want to see people, you know, feel good and not just kind of crumble and burn out because their workplaces are not good. Um, I think, you know, getting my degree in this space and really focusing on IO psychology kind of made me a people in the workplace person. And I am, I'm definitely very passionate about seeing that space change. And, you know, sometimes I've thought about, do we need to change the word from wellness and I'll call it workplace wellness, but change, call it something else because of the, some of the stigma around wellness and the trends and, and that. Um, but you know, I think we should just reclaim it and, and talk about wellness more holistically. Yeah. And I would, um, say something similar, which is that <laughs> I think, I think the reason why we are so excited to share, um, how we've been thinking about wellness and what we've been finding in our research is because we have all these stories that people have shared with us about the difference that these leaders made in their lives because they were focused on wellness. Everything from people who, you know, literally said in their interviews that they don't think that they would be alive because they were struggling with really serious health issues during a time when they worked for a leader who was really great at being flexible and adaptable and coming up with tailored solutions for them. And um, that they really think that under another leader, the stress might've really been too problematic. Um, and, uh, and so we have stories like that. We have stories of people who um, decided to have families because they had a leader that they thought that would support that. And they don't know if their, you know, children would be here if it wasn't for the fact that they had a leader who was working more flexibly. Um, there's lots of things in the data set um, that I think have really brought this concept to life for us. And so the more we talk with people and the more we hear these stories, the more passionate we become about the idea that these stories are really important to tell. And the hope is that 
not just the data that we've gathered, but also that that connection will be made for leaders who hear those stories as well, that they'll want to put themselves more into the side of being a leader that someone might, might remember that way, as opposed to some of the other leaders that we heard about who um, really had detrimental effects, not just on the employees, but on their families. And then that sort of permeates out to society, communities, you know. Um, so I think uh, the hope is that these stories will inspire people to try to get a little bit better. And I think we're both pretty passionate about that. I think the one point that just kind of what I've been hearing more recently is this, there's a fear, I think, economically right now mm-hmm. um, with everything going on, you know, those layoffs and stock market and this whole, you know, Silicon Valley bank, all this stuff, people are a little bit in a panic. And I think that makes leaders and organizations panic a bit. And my biggest concern right now when it comes to that is that when people are afraid, they go back to what they're comfortable with. They go back to what they know. And so I think that's going to drive some leaders to make poor decisions around wellness because, oh, well, you know, five years ago when everyone was in the office, we were performing better, not thinking about all the things that have happened since then and how that might not be true. You know, if we were still in the office, it may not, you know, you might still be struggling as an organization because, you know, of what's happening in the the environment, right? So I think that there is a tendency when we're in fear, when we're feeling like we need to survive to kind of go back to what's comfortable. And I think that's a risk for what we're get, what we know is going to help employees and really help productivity and performance of the organizations in the long run. Yeah. And I think also we're seeing a lot of companies that are basing their data on whether or not they should, you know, make changes to their working style or not. That incorporates, um, you know, data from the very beginning of the pandemic lockdown when people were not just working from home, they were also coping with a complete, you know, uh, global crisis. And people had kids who were schooling from home at the same time they're working from home, which is a very different situation than just working from home, right? And so there's all these confounding um, factors that get in the way of people really telling what is, if we can plan to do this well, and we can be conscious about how we're doing this and everybody's not thrown into it and they don't have 8 million other things going on in their house at the same time, what would that look like? And it would look pretty different, I think, from what we just experienced. So that's that the data that we got on working from home during the pandemic actually doesn't paint that crazy of a picture. Like people were pretty productive, but um, it also is not like an equivalent scenario to just working from home. So we're going to need some new data to try to make that case. I think. I always say that the early studies on working from home showed that you have to have the right technology, the right office space, the quiet space to work in. Your children need proper childcare. All of the things that made it successful before, way before the pandemic, are the things that make it successful now. So the the period of time when we learned to do it in a panic, (laughs) we learned a lot and we got really better at it, but it wasn't under the ideal circumstances because there had been research long before the pandemic about what a proper setup at, at home for telework was you know, taking away flexibility or, you know, completely disregarding the things we know to be true today, that people can work effectively in all sorts of environments, whether that's at home, whether that's sort of hybrid space, you know, what have you. Um, 
I think that's the piece that's really important to, to take away, know that that's true and not fall back in fear when you're seeing things or maybe just not panning out exactly like you'd want them to. Um, and thinking more critically as to why you're seeing, you know, potential dips in, in what's going on for businesses, productivity, and likely when you look at the picture, a lot of times it's external to the team itself. I think that what we have found is really important is adaptability. And we're going to have to see organizations move out of their comfort zone, whatever that comfort zone was, is, and be adaptable to what employees are looking for now and allowing for the open-mindedness that things could be better than people might assume based on their past experiences or their knee-jerk or gut reactions. So I think um, that adaptability and flexibility is really core to our model of leading for wellness. And I think it comes into play here too. I just wanted to go back to something that Patricia said, which was the financial situation right now. Um, I think that there may be a need to include financial health in, in our definition because it is a really important factor when people are feeling insecure about their job because layoffs are happening or they're not making ends meet because the, the minimum wage isn't quite enough to meet the demands of an everyday family life. That does, it affects your well-being, but it's sort of like your financial well-being affects your overall well-being. Um, so I think it's not an aspect of well-being I naturally think about, but um, I think that it is a really big part of it. And in the organization side as well, when there's financial well-being at the organization, people are more calm. Leadership is more calm about offering the kind of flexibility and programming development, leadership development that you've been talking about. Yeah, I think you're spot on. Financial um, health definitely ties into all the other types of wellness that we've talked about. And there's kind of this... um, underlying, you know, basic needs that need to be met for employees, right. To be able to thrive. And that includes being able to just put food on their table, right. Feeling like they can, they're not worried. They're going to lose their housing, um, because something gets delayed or their car breaks down and now they're all the money has to go there. Right. So that is definitely a huge, huge piece of this. Um, and from an organizational perspective, we know that that's what's driving a lot of decisions that leaders make, as well. So yeah, I completely agree. Financial health is important. And when we're in a situation where a lot of things feel unstable right now, um, again, it's really easy to go back to, you know, what you are comfortable with, but we know that financial health of organizations is actually going to improve, um, if they focus on maintaining the financial health of their employees and the other wellness factors for their employees. One thing, um, I did want to call out in this discussion and, you know, maybe people don't want to hear this, but we know that layoffs actually are really, really bad for companies and so bad long-term. So leaders are going to be like, oh gosh, financial health, we're maybe not, our stock is down because of all these other millions of factors. And instead of addressing the fact that, you know, this is not about like the financial health wellness is not because of the employee population and thinking more long-term, they then make a gut reaction to, we need to cut cost and cut cost means layoffs, which then creates instability within the organization. People are going to be afraid for their financial wellness and everything else because they might lose their job or, you know, maybe now their workloads higher because these layoffs happened and then they're going to burn out. And that's going to actually impact the business bottom line much, much more than if they had 
figured out a way to not have massive layoffs. Right. And usually there is a way to avoid it to some degree. Um, but a lot of people just want to act quickly. Saw a lot of great examples during the pandemic of different companies doing different things where if it was a pay cut at the top, um, sabbaticals, early retirements, they got really creative instead of immediately going to layoffs. And I thought that I was proud of the organizations that I saw doing that because layoffs do have such a detrimental effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it sends a signal to employees as well that, you know, that's not your go-to, right? That your first line of defense is not to cut people, but rather to think of more creative solutions, which uh, goes back to this idea of being creative and really thinking about, okay, how can I support wellness here? We might have to do something we've never done before, but you know, that helps us to avoid this other more negative outcome. Um, instead of doing the easy thing or the thing that seems in the moment, like that will be the quickest fix. But, uh, the reality is that usually that's not the right answer and it doesn't send a great signal to employees either. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today and um, all your great advice. I love this idea of really leaning into leadership development instead of the next trendy thing in terms of well-being because the the investment is going to take you so much further than something that probably will capture a few but fall flat for many if it's not what they need right now. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. This has been an awesome discussion and uh, We're hoping that that's uh, how wellness moves forward in a tailored way that meets people where they are. So um, this has been a great uh, conversation centered on that idea. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of HRC. As your thoughts from today's episode steep, share with us what you are brewing using the hashtag HRT. That's hashtag H-R-T-E-A. HRT is brought to you by Villanova HRD. To learn more about Villanova University's graduate programs in human resource development, visit our website at villanovahrd.com.